1: And welcome. The History of the Great War episode 154. This week, a thank you goes out to Peter, Kieran, Robert, Brad, and Patrick for choosing to support this podcast on Patreon, where they now get access to special Patreon-only episodes, as well as ad-free episodes of the main of the mainline episodes once advertisements start. Over the last two episodes, we have discussed the events on the Italian front during 1918. In this episode, we will conclude our story of the Italian Front by looking at the last week of the war for the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and then dig into what happened after. We will also cover, somewhat briefly, the events at Versailles which pertain to Italy in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. As I mentioned in the Middle Eastern episodes, these topics are also topics that we will touch on in episodes later this year, where we will dig much deeper into all of the events at Versailles. However, during those discussions, these topics may get overshadowed by some of the larger things that we will be discussing at that time, so I wanted to make sure the Italian front got its time in the spotlight. It also helps make these Italian episodes more of a complete story. We will also be closing out this episode with a brief discussion of the legacy of the war in Italy. For Italians, their part in the First World War would be a critical step in the road to the fascism that would rule the country leading into the Second World War. After the Battle of Vittorio Veneto, the Allies would evaluate the situation somewhat differently than the Austrians would. In For God and Kaiser, the Imperial Austrian Army, 1619-1918, to 1918, Richard Bassat would say, quote, For everyone in the Imperial and Royal Army from the Kaiser downwards, the failed offensive was perceived as a defeat. Ironically, the Entente did not see it as a defeat. To their consternation, the Imperial and Royal Army was showing no signs of disintegration despite reports of mutiny, hunger, strikes, and the eternal problem of feuding nationalities. This defeated army had attacked the armies of three nations with numerical inferiority, and had conducted a skillful withdrawal, inflicting heavy casualties and taking more than 40,000 prisoners. Such was not the behavior of an army on the brink of collapse. While the Allies may have thought that the Austrians were still holding together, on the other side of the line the situation was far more clear. The Austrian army was near the point of collapse. On November 1st, Austrian representatives in contact with the Italians would request armistice terms. In The White War, Life and Death on the Italian Front, 1915-1919, to Mark Thompson would summarize the terms that were provided like this. "...the Austro-Hungarians must stop fighting at once, the Imperial army must be reduced to twenty divisions and surrender half of its artillery, all of the occupied territories corresponding to the Treaty of London must be evacuated within a period to be decided by the Allies, all German troops must leave the Empire within fifteen days, all Allied prisoners of war must be liberated at once, and the Allies must have free use of all Imperial transport networks." The terms were non-negotiable, and the Austrians had until midnight on November 3rd to accept." When the Austrian leaders received this information, they would spend most of the night discussing them. Emperor Karl initially resisted accepting them, but after some long discussions, it was decided that there was simply no choice. They must acquiesce. This was the only chance of keeping any semblance of the empire together. At the front, while these conversations were occurring in Vienna, Borovic was doing everything he possibly could to keep the army together. The longer the war went on, the more troops just disappeared, or were killed or were captured by the Italians. At the time that the armistice discussions were occurring, Borivik had about 80,000 loyal troops still together and organized. Over the next several days, he would send messages to Karl on multiple occasions, stating that he was ready and able to march these troops to Vienna. He was prepared to use what was left of the army to preserve the empire and the Habsburg dynasty. But all of these messages went unanswered. By this point, Karl had lost all hope of maintaining the empire, and he was very hesitant to try and use force to keep his place on the throne. And so Borovic was stuck waiting for a call that would never arrive. The armistice between Italy and the Austro-Hungarian Empire would come into effect at 3pm on November 4th. However, the Italians had accepted Austria's terms the day before, they just wanted to delay 24 hours to continue their advance and to continue rounding up prisoners. There was some confusion about this fact on the Austrian side, and because of this, the Austrian troops believed that the war ended on November 3rd at around 3 p.m., and most units were unaware that there was a delay, which meant that they had stopped fighting when they shouldn't have. This made all of these troops easy targets for the Italians to continue their advance, and it resulted in the Italians taking 350,000 prisoners just in the last 24 hours of the conflict. These and other troops would be held in poor conditions near the front, and it would result in some 30,000 additional deaths, just due to poor treatment. As soon as the armistice did come into effect, the Italian Prime Minister Orlando announced Italy's victory, saying that it was one of the greatest ever recorded in history. On the Austrian side, the news was accompanied by a message from Karl, saying, Filled now as ever with unwavering devotion to all my peoples, I do not wish to oppose the free government with my own person. I recognize in advance whatever decisions German Austria may make about its future form. I renounce all participation in the affairs of the state. The happiness of my people was from the beginning, but the object of my most ardent wishes. Only an inner peace can heal the wounds of war." When peace was declared along the front, many of the units just stopped fighting and began to strike up a friendly relationship. All along the front, the Austrian units continued their retreat, either as organized military units or as deserters, and on November 7th, the last Austrian unit crossed the pre-war border. It was over. So, with the war over, the winners now had to figure out what they actually wanted, and if they were going to get it. For Italy, they knew exactly what they wanted, and that was the territory that they had been promised around Trieste in the Treaty of London from 1915, and also some areas on the eastern Adriatic. For the latter, they would run up against a good deal of opposition, because there was a lot of international support for the creation of Yugoslavia, which would need that area along the Adriatic. To increase their claim to the areas, the Italians moved forces into those areas where the population was primarily Slovene and Croatian. These military units then violently cracked down on any organized groups in the area. This was a plan created and promoted by General Badoglio and fully endorsed by Rome. Once these units were in place, they then spent money and time on a propaganda campaign that was designed to try and destroy popular support for the new country. These Italian efforts attempted to achieve two goals. The first was to try and make the area unstable, which would justify the Italian army's presence there. And the second goal was to try and discredit and erode the support for the Yugoslavs' nations that were at Versailles talking to other countries. In both of these goals, the Italians were almost entirely unsuccessful. All that Italy's efforts did was drive all of the Yugoslav nationalists and the civilians in the area closer to the Serbians. And if there is any group That you did not want to have a clashing claim with at Versailles, it was the Serbs. No Eastern country had better claims for whatever they wanted, and no Eastern country would have a larger voice at the peace conferences. Unfortunately for Italian aspirations, their leaders would proceed to completely mishandle the negotiations at Versailles. In their defense, it was impossible to properly prepare for Versailles. A journalist would say that the crushing weight of the world lay on the leader's shoulders, and they were supreme as perhaps no other body of men in history has been supreme. No one could control them. When it came down to it, there were three important men at Versailles, French Prime Minister Clemenceau, British Prime Minister Lloyd George, and American President Wilson. Orlando hoped to be in this group, but was mostly unsuccessful. He was generally thought of very poorly by the other leaders, and it was difficult for him to make an impact. The biggest issue was that Orlando was playing from a point of weakness. He knew that Italy did not have even close to the power of the other nations, and so he was not involved with negotiations that were not directly related to Italy. This prevented him from having an impact on the negotiations as a whole, which minimized Italy and its concerns. It did not help that the Italians were constantly pushing for greater territory, while many of the nations did not even see the need to honor the Treaty of London that Italy had signed in 1915, let alone all this new territory that they wanted. While the negotiations in France dragged on and on, the situation on the Italian home front began to deteriorate. There was a concerted effort by some groups within Italy to move the country to a more reasonable position in the post-war world, and to temper the expansionist aspects of its foreign policy. The leading voice in this movement was Leonardo Bissolati, who led a campaign to limit Italy's territorial ambitions, especially in areas that were not an Italian majority. He would try his best to convince other Italians that this path was the correct one, but on January 11th, when speaking at a public meeting in Milan, his movement would fall apart. At the meeting, Bissolati would be shouted down by hardcore nationalists who favored an even larger Italian expansion into the Balkans and elsewhere. This is sometimes cited as the first act of organized fascist violence. With the silencing of a reasonable path, Italy was not set up, Was now set up for disappointment. What was being demanded by the people, what was being demanded by Orlando, was simply unattainable. They were just not going to get everything they wanted, and this set them up on the path to disappointment. In Versailles, Orlando simply refused to budge from his positions on what Italy deserved while at the same time the Italian military strengthened its position in future Yugoslavia. In February 1919, the Italians threatened to stop all humanitarian aid from America that was going to Yugoslavia, Czechoslovakia, and Austria, in order to gain concessions from the other countries. The Americans simply answered that they would stop all aid that was on its way to Italy, which forced the Italians to back down. In April 1919, when it was suggested that the Germans should finally be brought into the negotiations, Orlando refused to proceed until Italy's claims had been handled. By this point, Lloyd George was done with Italy. He just wanted them to stop being a nuisance. And so he said that Britain would agree to anything that Wilson and Orlando agreed to. In essence, this solved two problems that Lloyd George and Clemenceau had in one single stroke. It made Wilson feel important, and it got Orlando out of the way by giving them their own little project to work on. They also knew that Wilson would probably never agree to many of the expansionist dreams of the Italians, so there was no need to worry there either. Wilson, while perhaps not able to have the influence in Versailles that he initially hoped, found it easy to throw America's weight around against Italy. When Wilson and Orlando met, Wilson suggested that the part of Fiume high on the list of Italian desires, be made into a free port with considerable autonomy, but within the Yugoslav sphere of economic influence. Orlando refused. Then Wilson made it very clear that the Eastern Adriatic was simply off-limits, and that was all going to Yugoslavia. Orlando did not approve. Then Wilson stated, quite plainly, that the Treaty of London could not be reconciled with the peace that would be made, and the Italians would, essentially, just have to deal with it. Wilson would eventually suspend further loans to Italy until the situation was resolved. Orlando, frustrated, said that if these areas were denied to Italy, he would leave Versailles, and Italy would refuse to join the League of Nations. Wilson would call this threat unbelievable, which prompted Orlando to announce that he would be leaving the conference. Lloyd George is said to have laughed when he found out that Orlando thought that the conference would come to a halt without him being present, saying, They always believe that we people of the North bluff the way they do. While those at Versailles were losing more and more patience with Italy, in the streets of Rome, signs were all over the city demanding that the Adriatic coast and Fiume be given to Italy. The core of the problem between Italy and the other nations is that Wilson firmly insisted on the creation of Yugoslavia, and in this he was supported by France and Britain because they wanted his support on other items. The Italians on the other hand did not even pay lip service to things like self-determination and anti-imperialism. They did not want any less territory than the British or French, really. But the Italians simply refused to play the game. When on May 26th, Orlando returned to Versailles, he would say that Italy would give up its claim to Fiume if everything else in the Treaty of London was honored. To this, Wilson simply refused, and Clemenceau agreed. At the end of the day, Fiume would become a free city, at least for the moment, and it would be recognized as a separate state under the new League of Nations. Italy would be given some of its other demands, but most of the areas that they wanted would go to Yugoslavia. When it came time for the Italians to sign the treaty, it would not be Orlando who was in charge. Just a few days before the treaty was ready, in June 1919, Orlando would be ousted from his seat in the government. While on paper, the signing of the Treaty of Versailles settled the situation. In Fiume, the war was far from over. General D'Annunzio and a band of Italian war veterans would march into and occupy Fiume in September 1919. When D'Annunzio's group lost the first few elections in the city, they made Fiume into a war zone. In 1922, they would win back control, and they would hand over the city to Mussolini in November 1923. For its part in the war, Italy had gained territory that included 300,000 Slovenes, 200,000 Croats, 250,000 German-speaking Austrians, and just 650,000 Italians. To try and make sure that these new areas were properly incorporated into Italy, war veterans were asked to settle in the area, a good old Roman trick. To get all these small territorial gains, the Italians had sacrificed 690,000 soldiers, with a million more seriously wounded, and 600,000 civilians dead due to war-related hardship. It was a heavy price, and it would only be the beginning of the hardship for the Italians. Just to wrap up one final story, I think outside of the Western Front, the person who has been in our story the longest is General Borivik of the Austro-Hungarian Army. He had commanded the empire's troops through the hard battles of the Asanzo, through the great victories at Caporetto, and through the great defeats of 1918. After the war, Borivic would settle in Austria, after having been exiled from Yugoslavia, even though he was a Slav, because of his role in the war. He would live the rest of his life in destitution, and had to rely on the charity of former soldiers to help him through. Just a few years after the war in 1920, he would die of a stroke. After he died, the former Emperor Karl would pay for the memorial to be erected for Borovic out of his own pocket, a sad end to one of the empire's most loyal generals. Of course, the war did not end with the signing of the treaty at Versailles, or even the death of some of its participants. All over Europe, the shadow of the war would be felt for decades to come, and nowhere more so than in Italy. The disappointment of the Italian gains after the war would feed into a narrative of Italy having been betrayed by its allies. Italian nationalists would rage against Wilson, rage against not being given their territory on the Adriatic. These mindsets would then play into many of the economic hardships experienced in Italy, as much like other countries, it tried to come to terms with devastated areas of the countries, massive levels of public debt, and dealing with their demobilizing army. The total cost of the war for Italy was 148 billion lire, which is obviously hard to properly put into context, but if you total up the budget of Italy from 1861 to 1914, it still comes to just a little over half of what they spent from 1914 to 1918. 5.5 million men had been brought into the army, two-fifths of them had become casualties, and three-fifths of them now had to readjust to civilian life. Cost of living and inflation would continue to rise in 1919, a problem felt worse by those in society least able to bear it. The traditional government found itself distrusted, the socialists found themselves unprepared to lead, and those of more radical ideologies found found a power vacuum that they were glad to fill. Even with all the hardship of the First World War, there were many who saw it as a critical step on Italy's path because it was the first major national challenge that the country had faced since unification. It had caused the country to come together, but it was about to once again be torn apart. During his rise to power, Mussolini would use the First World War for his own purposes. He would glorify the soldiers who had fought in it and demonize those they had fought for. What were once small, almost personal cemeteries on the Carso, where small groups of families had made their own little areas, became became grand monuments to Italy. At Retapuglia, the largest Italian cemetery, the remains of soldiers were brought together into 22 colossal terraces, with the Duke of Aosta buried between them. Here the cemetery celebrated the Third Army, even though all it did was unsuccessfully attack on the Carso. Other giant monuments were built in the interwar period as well, but instead of promoting remembrance and honoring the sacrifices that were made, they were used to promote Italian nationalism, and eventually fascism. In some ways, the war would never end in Italy. By 1922, Mussolini, himself a veteran of the Asanzo and Asiago fighting, was already on his way to power. Beyond that lay more fighting, more death, more suffering. Another war, another story, for another time.